1: and it was found out that I had glandular fever and through the blood tests, they discovered that I was pregnant as well. And so of course my poor parents were absolutely devastated. At 13, 14 years old, they thought I was a good girl, but I wasn't a good girl because I used to lie and sneak out at night. So when they wanted to know who the father of the baby was and I couldn't tell them, I had to give them some kind of explanation.
0: G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story... Well, today we begin a special six-part series of interviews that tell a multi-generational story of how God works through the lives of broken people. Initially, it wasn't planned, but when radio producer Eric Scatterbo was asked to interview Helen Marsh regarding her book Up Out of Egypt, he thought her surname sounded familiar. He quickly realised that he had already met her son and had already been planning on interviewing him for a separate purpose. It was only after doing a few of these interviews that he discovered how all six of them linked together in an amazing way so let's get started with part one of this six-part series beginning with Helen Marsh sitting down for a chat with Eric Scatterbo and author Samantha Jekyll in our Melbourne studios
2: welcome back to the program
3: thanks for having me Eric it's great to be here
2: Glad to have you with us once again. And you have another friend that you'd like to introduce us to.
3: Yeah. I've um, brought along my friend Helen Marsh. We met about seven years ago. I was helping Helen in the publication of her book. And it was a great book. I opened it up. I had the privilege of seeing it before anyone else and reading it before anyone else. So I opened up the book and started reading. And her story jumped out at me. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I would read you a snippet of that before we start the interview. Okay. So her book's called Up Out of Egypt. The first paragraph says this, Up Out of Egypt is the personal story of Helen Marsh, a young rebellious girl who from the age of 12 was in search of fun. By the time she was 14, she became sick and when hospitalised, it was discovered that she not only suffered from glandular fever, but that she was pregnant. To cover her wrong, she lied again, telling her parents she had been raped, the police were caught in and one lie led to another.
2: Yes, I think if I would have read those two paragraphs, I would want to know what happened next. So, we're going to find out today. Welcome to the program, Helen Marsh. Thank you very much. Okay, well, quite a story that you have. We're going to try to get it all in. So, let's get right to it. How does it all start?
1: Yeah, I guess I've got to go back to the beginning. Um, The reason that I... Got myself into a predicament at 14 years old was because I was looking searching for significance and acceptance and uh, I had been born into a family of three other siblings all older than me much older than me and I grew up like the little kid that just didn't feel like she counted in the family just didn't feel like I fitted and so I didn't feel loved And when I went to school, I thought that this was where I'd find acceptance and I wanted so much to have a lot of friends. But because I was so insecure, I didn't find that either. I wasn't good at school. I had learning difficulties. I wasn't academic. I wasn't good at sport. I was this fat little kid that didn't do so well. And so I really, um, I just felt lost, alone, unaccepted worthless. And so I had to find acceptance somewhere. By the time I went to secondary school, I decided, or I discovered actually, that um, boys were interested in me. I was a flirt and I gained yeah, their let, attention.
2: Let's be blunt about this. You were a bit boy crazy. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah. My mother said yeah. that I would chase anything that had pants on them. And girls didn't wear pants in those days.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But but what was driving you behind the scenes was this longing for affirmation. Is that fair to say?
1: Affirmation Mm -hmm. and love. I thought the boys that I was with were going to love me.
2: And they would give you everything that you were missing. This would scratch that itch, so to speak.
1: I thought they would, Mm -hmm. but it didn't work that way. I was I was looking for love. I was looking really I was looking for being liked. I wanted mm-hmm. someone to like me, to affirm who I was. But instead of finding that in the boys that I I was with, I found that I was used and abused, and it wasn't long before it was discovered that I was pregnant.
2: Okay, so here you are 14 years old and they took you to the hospital. What what happened?
1: Yeah, um I became very sick. And it was found out that I had glandular fever. And through the blood tests, they discovered that I was pregnant as well. And so, of course, my poor parents were absolutely devastated. So your parents didn't know that you had boyfriends and that you were sexually active? They certainly didn't know. No, at 13, 14 years old, they thought I was a good girl. But I wasn't a good girl because I used to lie and sneak out at night so that I could have that little bit of attention And so when they wanted to know who the father of the baby was and I couldn't tell them, I had to give them some kind of explanation and a girlfriend of mine actually suggested that I tell them that I was raped and that would solve the problem. But little did I know that naturally my parents called the police and the police were brought in and I was cross-examined and um, they asked about my story and... Uh, the other girl was interviewed and it was discovered that it was all lies. And the, the policewoman actually threatened me that if I didn't tell the police the truth, I would actually be put into Wynne-Layton, which was a home for wayward girls,
3: Because that's the other thing. We're not talking about the after the 60s. We're talking about this all happened in the 50s.
1: Mm, Yes. And,
3: And there was certainly a different way of raising children and the way young girls especially should handle themselves in
1: the 50s, wasn't there? Oh, absolutely, yes. And to find that you were pregnant and unmarried in the 1950s was an absolute disgrace, not only to the girl but to the family as well. Yeah. And so. So, this uh, is a big deal. Mm, very big deal. Yeah.
2: But then you were left with the reality that now your parents know mm. what you did. Mm. What happened next?
1: Yeah. There were homes for unmarried mothers, and my parents arranged for me to go into one of those homes. I was about five months pregnant when I entered the sisterhood at North Fitzroy, and I was there. With a number of girls, I could have 12 girls in the home.
2: Now, let me just say for people who aren't aware, because I wasn't until you let me know about this before we started to record. But back in the 50s, because it was such a scandal to be an unmarried, pregnant teenage girl, they would have girls go to this home and then have the baby so that nobody would know. Is that right? Is that what was done? That's
1: right. And then that enabled the girl, after the baby was born and adopted out, to go back into society and um, pick up where she left off, mm-hmm. and nobody would know.
2: So they really went to great lengths to protect the reputation of the girl so yes. that you could. Come and the
1: family, and I'm the guessing. Family. And the yeah. family. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right.
2: So that's what happened to you? It Did was, it all work out to plan?
1: Um, well, when I went in to the home I was told that I wasn't allowed to use my name, that I had to have a new name and I chose Diane because I thought that was a bit glamorous and uh, (laughs) and we weren't allowed to say anything about our, our family. So the friendships were really superficial and because I was still insecure, I didn't gel with the girls very well.
2: Okay, and then you had the baby?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, had, I, I didn't know anything about having a baby. Nobody talked about things like that in, in those days. And um, so when I went into labour, I had no idea that I was in labour. I told the matron that I had pains and she told me to rest. I was in labour the first night in agony, um, strong labour. But the next night it was worse. And um, by the morning after, that's two nights in labour, the girls in my room went down and told the sister and they went and um, prepared the room, the labour ward, for the birth. And I was only down there three quarters of an hour and my baby was born. Wow. Wow. So no doctors? Just I don't think the doctor made it, actually. Wow. I have a bit of a reputation of having very quick labours at the huh. end. And so, no, no doctor, just the, the midwife and another nursing yeah. sister. So, Helen, I've had five kids, and
3: once that baby's born, uh, the beautiful midwives usually come and put the baby on our on your stomach or on your chest so you get to see the baby. So was this the kind
1: of way it was treated for you? No, the baby was whisked away. And so did you I, get to
3: see the baby at all?
1: I didn't see my little baby for two days they brought the baby into me with the bottle and asked me if I'd like to feed her and I did I had a daughter Um, okay, and uh, so yeah it was just so beautiful to hold my little girl I'd always wanted to be a mum and uh, to have this baby in my arms was just so precious I only saw my baby once more when I went in to watch her be bathed and then the next day, her adoptive parents came and took her to their home. I didn't know where she was going. I didn't know anything about the people. It was all totally a secret.
2: So this had all been prearranged?
1: That's right, yes. I My parents came in one day to visit me, and I was called into the matron's office, and I was told that I needed to sign the adoption papers. And I didn't want to sign the papers. I didn't want to sign my baby away. But my parents told me that this was the best thing, that a baby needed a mother and a father and that I was doing the right thing. And so I signed those papers and that gave the right for my baby to be adopted.
2: So you really weren't in on the whole decision-making process, it was just kind of told to you?
1: No, there was no pension for unmarried mothers in those days. And so I couldn't support myself, I couldn't leave home and decide I'd keep the baby no, there was no possible way that I could keep What about baby. naming the baby? Did you have the right to name the baby? I did because the birth certificate, the original birth certificate had to be submitted to the government and I called my baby Karen Lee. The baby was taken to her home with her new parents and my parents came in the next day and picked me up and took me home. I cried in the car all the way home. I couldn't bear the thought of the fact that I would never see my baby again. Yeah. Were you offered any counselling or any support? None. No. No. Um, Gosh, I don't think I even knew what counselling was in those days. We were just told to get on with life, um, that we were fortunate to have a fresh start. And so it was just stuffed down. I wasn't allowed to tell anybody. My parents knew, my close family knew. But apart from that, it was a secret that I just buried in my heart.
0: You're listening to The Story. Today, Helen Marsh is sharing her story with Eric Scatterbo and Samantha Jekyll. As we've been hearing, Helen was only 14 years old when she had to give up her baby for adoption, never knowing if she would ever see her daughter again. We'll find out what happens next in Helen's life when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call one 800 prayforme for me That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. We're continuing with Helen Marsh sharing her remarkable life journey with Eric Scadabo and author Samantha Jakel. Helen has written about her life experiences in her book called Up Out of Egypt. Before the break, we heard how when Helen was only 14 years old, she was forced to give up her baby for adoption. Then she was told to just kind of stuff her emotions down and get on with life. Now we'll find out what happened next in
2: her story. Were you able to get on with life?
1: Yeah. Jobs were a lot easier to get in 1959. It was 1959 by that time. And um, I had done a little bit of training at the business college. And so I went to an agency and they told me about a job and I went and I was successful in getting the job. And so I started work. And that was, I had about six weeks break after the baby was born and I started work. And it wasn't... Long after I was there, that I saw this gorgeous looking guy, and uh, I thought, hmm, wonder who he is. And I was talking to the T man the next day, and he said, Oh, that's my son, Walter. And I thought, hmm, Walter. So I wrote my name and address and phone number on a little piece of paper and handed it to the T man. And that night, I got a phone call. And it was Wally.
2: Well, he didn't waste much time, though. He He really didn't
1: waste much time. He liked the look of me, too. So uh, during that conversation, I said to him, oh, we must get together sometime. And he said, how about now? I'm just across the road in the telephone box. (laughs) He's enthusiastic.
2: (laughs) And he's about your age? He was
1: 19 at the time, and I was still 15. We saw each other just about every night after that. And we fell madly in love and uh, we wanted to get married. I wanted to get married. All I wanted was to belong to somebody and I ran that past my mother. Mm -hmm. But of course she said no. Um, She said, Helen, wait until you're 17 and you can get engaged. And I thought, 17, that's a lifetime away. I couldn't (laughs) wait that long. And so Wally and I decided that we would make it happen and it wasn't many Months after that, that I discovered that I was pregnant again. Mm. My poor mother, I'd had the baby in the January, and by the November of that year, I was married. And um, that was the beginning of our life together.
2: Mm. Now, did Wally know about your past pregnancy?
1: I had told him about my baby because it was so fresh and new to Mm -hmm. me um, that, yes, I had told him about my baby. And he said, oh, that's okay. He he didn't. Mind didn't phase him? No, it no didn't phase him. Okay. He'd had a bit of a history himself and he thought, well, if I was able to accept him, then he would accept me. So November comes along and you get married you're pregnant. Yes. And you get married? Yes. What did life look like for you then? Ah, oh, I was so excited. It was all I ever wanted was to be a mother yeah. and ma- married and have a baby. And, and it was wonderful to start with. We had our little girl. I was blessed with another little girl. Mm. And, and that just filled my heart. Although I have to say that the emptiness and the loss was still there. I would walk down the street and I would see a pram and I'd peer into the pram and I'd think, I wonder if that's my baby Mm. I wonder where my baby is. I wonder how she's going. I wonder if she feels loved. And I fell pregnant very easily. And so I had three kids in three years. Wow. And let's put this back in perspective. You're still a
3: teenager, right? Yeah. That's right. So it's not like you're a mature age mom. You're still a
1: teenager. Yes, that's right. And I was still insanely jealous, still very insecure, And so I would question Wally if he wasn't home from work at the right time when he normally came home. Um, I would question him, who have you been talking to? Where were you? And this became a real pressure. Pressure of married life wasn't the dream that I thought it was going to be. Mm. It wasn't the answer to the love that I needed. All it did was bring more pressure on me and uh, so... Because of the lack of money I wanted to take a job and so I took a night shift job at a factory locally and uh, it wasn't long before that that I found the attentions of one of the workers was really pleasant and unfortunately before long I realised it had gone too far. I loved my husband, I didn't want my marriage to end and so that relationship ended. But it wasn't long after that that I noticed that my husband was staying away from home a lot longer than he should have been. He was going places that was out of character and I began to be suspicious. And for 18 months, I didn't know. But in the end, I found out that he too was having an affair. We both looked for the comfort of others and um, when I found out, I decided that I didn't want to live anymore. Without his love, I couldn't bear to live without him. And so I took an overdose and I ended up in hospital. I don't know how long I was in the coma for, but it was when I woke up out of that coma, I looked up and I saw Wally's face looking down at me. And I saw his face full of love, full of concern. And I realised that he loved me. For the first time in my life, I truly felt loved. And you know, that was the beginning of a new life for me. Jealousy left me, miraculously left me. You know, I wasn't, God wasn't in my equation then, but I believe that I was in God's equation.
2: Wow, that line is so powerful. God was not in my equation, but I was in his. That's right. That was the beginning. That was the turning point in your life.
1: It was. From then on, the jealousy left me. Our kids were in their early teens. They were playing sport. I became a softball coach. And it was a beautiful time of our life. But there was something missing. Even though everything was going really well, there was something missing still. And I began to think, I wonder if what I was taught as a child about the Bible and about God was there any truth in it? And I had, um, I'd gone to Jesus Christ Superstar, the musical, mm-hmm. and as I sat in that theatre and heard about the life of Christ, I thought, this is history. This is a truth. Jesus really did live. And that was the birth of my faith. Mm. And from then on, I began to wonder. By the way, I was already going to church I was attending a local church, but I had no sense of what it meant to be a Christian. And then I started talking to a lady and she had something that was different to other people that I knew. She had something that I wanted. She just had a confidence, a love for God. And one day she said to me, I'll take you to church if you like, Helen. And I thought, "Oh." No way, I don't want to get involved in anything like that. But I, I still kept in conversation with her and she still talked about her faith and what it meant to her. And I deep down in my heart, I hoped that she would ask me again. and 12 months later, she invited me to go to church with her. and by that time I was ready to jump at the opportunity and say yes. She took me to church. I went in, sat down, And I heard the singing, and I looked around at the people, and they seemed to know what they were really singing. They meant they loved God. I felt like I'd come home. For the first time in my life, I felt like I was in the right place. And that was the beginning of my journey with God.
2: And unfortunately, we're running out of time, but you really, really grew fast after that. Can you kind of fill us in what happened after that?
1: Yeah, I still felt really insecure and I told the pastor one day and he said, Helen, I think you need some counselling. And I went along to the counsellor and he said to me, Helen, I believe that you have bitterness and anger in your heart. And he said, just ask God who that that might be directed to. Well, it didn't take me long to realise it was my parents. Mm -hmm. Um, My relationship with mum and dad were fine on the surface, but I always had this inadequacy that I felt like I didn't add up in their sight. The counsellor suggested that I take time out to thank God for these people that I had bitterness and anger toward. And he said, give thanks to God for the qualities in them that you can see, that you can thank him for. And I thought, ah, that's not going to (laughs) work. But I thought, yeah, I better give it a go. And I gave it a go. And although I couldn't think of anything at the start, I asked God to help me. And he gave me a thought. And I thought, oh, yeah, they are like that, aren't they? And one thought built on another. And I was able to praise God until I had a list. And I was praising God for my parents. So really, in that counselling session, there was such power
3: for you in forgiving and forgiving Bought a renewed relationship with your parents
1: and a renewing in your own heart and your mind. That's that's right. the importance of that. Yes, that's right. And that changed me because I had a different attitude. I was free from the depression that I carried with me. I always used to say I was a sad person, um, but it turned out that I suffered with depression for most of my life. So when I was free from that uh, and I wanted to get involved in the church and feel like I belonged... I became a youth leader, and then I I was invited to become a deacon in the church, and from there on, yeah, God really developed things in my life. Mm -hmm. And I was working to put my son through secondary school in Maranatha, the Christian school, and I had this strong, compelling voice from God to say, leave work, and I didn't know why. And eventually I gave in to his prompting, and when I told my pastor that, was what God was saying, he said to me, well, Helen, I'll tell you what God's been saying to me for the past 18 months. He's calling you to be associate pastor of the Dufton Baptist Church, particularly for women. And I sat back and said, oh, well, he doesn't really know me. He wouldn't be asking me to do that if he knew what sort of a person I had been in the past. And Ray MacDonald, pastor of the church at that time, said, I believe I'm a very good judge of character. And so, after praying a lot about it and running it by my husband and and getting his approval, I said yes. And I was associate pastor, particularly for women, for six years at the Doveton Baptist Church.
2: Wow. I mean, to think that you came from your background to being an associate pastor, God can use anybody from any background. God can redeem you. I mean, it's such a fantastic redemption story. Yes. But – That's not the end of the story. That was just the first part of Helen Marsh's story because we haven't even gotten to eventually you are reunited with your first daughter, the one that was adopted. We'll have to have you back to share that part of the story.
1: Okay. I'd be glad to come back.
0: Okay, as we just heard, Helen Marsh will join us again next time to tell us the rest of her remarkable story, which she's written about in her book called Up Out of Egypt. So we'll be able to hear how she's finally reunited with her daughter next time. Meanwhile, for more information about Helen and her book, the website is upoutofegypt.com. That's up out of Egypt. And as I mentioned at the beginning of today's program, this is part one of a six-part series. So we invite you to listen to all six parts and hear the amazing way that God works through the lives of broken people and also hear the incredible way that they're all linked together. After Helen, we'll hear from her son Jeff and then from a couple named Brooke and Danny Sharp who met in a detox center. So that's all coming up in the series. And one theme that is clear throughout it is that God doesn't choose the most likely people to do something special special in his kingdom, but rather God likes to use the least likely people, people who've made mistakes and have gotten themselves into trouble. God uses these type of people because he's in the business of redeeming and restoring broken people's lives, as we shall hear throughout this series. Well, until next time, when we'll hear part two of Helen's story, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story.
1: The laws had changed, which gave the adoptive child or parents the right to have access to the birth certificate and I heard a news report telling us that was available to parents with adoptive children and I said to my husband it's not right that they make that possible because I didn't want to be in touch with Jan.
0: Once again, Helen Marsh joins us to share more of her remarkable story. Helen was only 14 years old when she was forced to give up her baby for adoption. Then, 29 years later, she received a phone call. We'll hear how Helen was finally reunited with her daughter next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life.